Elizabeth Barrett is a wife, mother, grandmother, licensed marriage and family therapist, educator, eavesdropper, and emotion worker. She uses all of these skills to address the subjects that we all grapple with in this conversation with the reluctant therapist. Tuesday, it's Tuesday and time for our appointment today, Elizabeth. What are we talking about? Well, today, uh, given what's happening in the world, um, the war between Israel and Hamas, I wanted to take this hour and devote it to a bit of a history lesson, um, some contextual information. To I know it would be helpful for me to understand the greater picture of what is happening. And fortunately, I have access to someone who has information about the greater picture of what is happening. And because there's so much heartache and mourning and sadness that I'm feeling, I'm sure most people are feeling on many levels, um, I find it comforting to at least get some understanding of how we could get to this place, how people could get to this place um, and, and feel compelled to be so brutal, to brutalize each other in this way. And so... Today, I've invited Dr. Stephen Lloyd Moffat here uh, to share his knowledge and provide history and context for this current war. Um, Dr. Stephen Lloyd Moffat is the chair of the Religious Studies Department at Cal Poly. He has a PhD in Religious Studies from UC Santa Barbara. He holds a Master's of Theology from St. Vladimir's Orthodox Theological Seminary. He also holds an MA in Religious Studies from UCSB. And Dr. Lloyd Moffat has been co-teaching the course Religion and Politics of the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict at Cal Poly since 2007. So I can't think of anyone better uh, to provide us with some history and context and information than Dr. Lloyd Moffat. Yeah, thanks, Elizabeth, for having me on. Uh, you know, so much of our response is emotional to this conflict. And that is, you know, I tell my students, if you are not emotional about this, you're not emotional about children dying and innocent people being attacked, and there's something wrong with you. You should be emotional. But part of the response also is coming to learn. And our role at the university is not just to sort of address emotions, which is part of our role, but also to address uh, knowledge. And uh, that's been sort of my academic role uh, involved with this since uh, 2007 when we started the course. Which I agree is the most valuable thing at this point because emotions can start running away from us <laughs> and then our mental health gets all stirred into it and I think when we're reacting from a place of emotions we're not always reacting to the correct information and so I wanted to step into an academic lens today to talk about this so I, I want you to lead this hour this is your hour but I think historical context maybe of where this all started would be helpful yeah sure so I mean Whenever you look at this conflict, uh, picking uh, starting apart is in part in part arbitrary. Okay. But uh, let's sort of start at the beginning. Okay. Uh, we have uh, fifty six minutes together or something, so yes. let's uh, let's start at the beginning. So. Both groups, uh, the uh, forerunners to the Israelis and the forerunners to the Palestinians, come on to the scene in that area around 1200 BCE or 1200 BC before Christ. Um, the the inhabitants of them are the Canaanites who are no longer with us. Uh, some of my students say, you know, the best way to solve this uh, this conflict is to give it back to the Canaanites, <laughs> but unfortunately, that's not an option. Okay, uh, they they both come in to the to that world. Uh, Israel. 
dominates the the area that we now think of as Israel-Palestine uh, for most of the next millennium. It doesn't always go well. Uh, they lose the northern part of the kingdom to the Assyrians. Eventually, the Babylonians come and take, uh, take them over. The Babylonians are replaced by the Persians. The Persians are replaced by the Greeks. And the Greeks are finally replaced by the Romans. So it doesn't always go well. But for more than a thousand years, uh, the Israelites are in their homeland, uh, which they come to see as, as their homeland. Uh, during the period of Roman oppression, uh, the Israelites uh, come together, revolt against the uh, Romans several times. And in 66, they have a, a CE. They have a big revolt that leads to the destruction of the, their second temple, uh, which is the Temple Mount where the Alaska Mosque is now, the holiest spot for Judaism, and the third holiest spot for, for Islam. And the point of a lot of conflict that was that was destroyed in seventy, one thirty five. Uh, they again revolt against the Romans. They're successful for uh, for a couple of years, um, but eventually the Romans are sick of the Israelites revolting, and so they kick them out of the region, um, and and uh, ban the name Israel for the region. And that's when the the name of the region shifts from Judea uh, or uh, Israel to uh, Palestine. The Jews begin their their period of diaspora, the dispersion. Uh, they tend to go into northern Europe, we call the Ashkenazi Jews, or uh, to Spain, northern Africa, the Sephardic Jews. Of course, there weren't airports at the time. So when, how many people are we talking about being displaced? Yeah, it's, it's hard to know, but uh, because many uh, Jews actually had already left during the Babylonian captivity, uh, many Jews had sort of uh, dispersed during the Roman or Greek periods mm-hmm. as economic opportunity goes. But, you know, we're probably talking a million uh, Jews uh, leaving uh, and eventually finding new homes. That's a lot of people being dispersed. Yes. And and wherever they went over the next 2,000 years, uh, or roughly 2,000 years, they were never allowed to be citizens. Okay. Um, and so a lot of the persecutions that happened to them in, in Europe or North Africa uh, or Spain uh, was because when things started to go bad, there was always this minority group who spoke a different language, had a different religion, and they were often scapegoated for whenever things went bad. For example, the Black Plague or when uh, Russian uh, pogroms uh, emerged at the end of the 19th century when things were going bad. So the experience of the Jews in Europe was uh, frequently persecution, usually at the hands of Christians who were in control. Uh, If we jump to the 18th century— uh, and 19th century, uh, we begin to see the rise of nations all over the place. So France emerges, uh, you know, England emerges as a, as a more unified state, America emerges. And there are some Jews who say, hey, look, we may be making steps into integration into European society, but we continue to be persecuted. And so we need a place that is Jewish in, in origin and identity. Uh, and they said, we're going to call this Zionism. Now, Zion is the area around Jerusalem because it was always sort of seen as the symbol of a homeland. And while, you know, there are many Jews who thought it should return to Jerusalem and the other area, there are many other options available at that time. And the key part of Jewish nationalism at the end of the 19th century was that there should be one place in the world where Jews are free of persecution. And this is an important backdrop because you often hear among some circles that, so I'm, you know, pro-Jewish but Mm anti-Zionism. Well, 
those are very hard to reconcile with one another. Because if you're anti-Zionism, what you're saying is there's no place in the world where Jews should be free of persecution. Mm. Uh, that, that as a world community, we are okay with Muslim nations, we are okay with Christian nations, because there are many nations that self-identify as that. But the Jews cannot have a Jewish-identifying nation. And so one, one has to be careful about how one uses uh, Zionism, because uh, the implication is uh, you're saying, if you're anti-Zionism, that there's no place where the Jews should be free of persecution. Was uh, this... Was this kind of a universal feeling, or was it just the Romans who continued that idea that they should have no place? Um, yeah, so so they often, uh, so different groups would persecute them. Virtually every group ended up persecuting them, in part because the Jews played a negative story in the Christian story. If you, if you know Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Matthew has uh, Pontius Pilate wanting to give Jesus back, and the Jews say, no, may his blood be upon us and upon his our children. And of course, Nobody says that. But there it set the sort of um, literary basis and scriptural basis for persecution. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were, there were many times throughout Europe where on things like Good Friday, uh, Jews would have to be lined up in front of the church and every Christian who entered the church would slap the Jew across the face. Uh, and that was normal in large parts of Christian history. Uh, the other thing is they would ban the use of the term Jewish. You had to call yourself a Christ killer. So what religion do you practice? I practice Christ killing religion. So, I mean, there's a longstanding uh, persecution. I would say, though, that not all Jews were on board with Jewish nationalism. A lot of Jews were saying, look, we can be a light unto the nations among the nations. We should be, you know, the the voice of God, but we do that better when we're integrated in other populations. And we can go to America and have a place, you know, free of, largely free of persecution and be that light unto nations. So, mo- so many, many Jews were not on board with this Zionism project. But... Uh, World War II and the Holocaust, um, which, you know, it's important within Jewish circles, they don't like to use the term Holocaust because Holocaust mm-hmm. is the offering of, uh, for past sin. And so they're like, oh, wait, if you call it the Holocaust, are we being offered for sins of the past? That's that, technically what Holocaust means. Yeah, that's what, ta- that's what Holocaust yeah. is. Yeah. It's when the priest used to offer animals for, for the sins of the people. And so uh, that is still the term that's used in academia. But Jews about 30, 40 years ago were like, really? That's not what the, we want to convey. And so uh, within Judaism, we tend to use Shoah. Uh, that is, uh, just means the catastrophe. Like there's nothing good about this. This was a catastrophe. And it really, um, really sort of stopped the question of whether Jews needed a place in the world to be free of persecution. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when six million Jews die simply for being Jewish, the debate of whether there needed to be a Jewish nation was uh, solved among Jews and among the world population. They were like, yes, that is, that is the case. So after World War II, uh, the UN gets together and says, let us carve out an area that will be a Jewish nation. And they chose the ancestral homelands. Now, the people who had been living there right. ever since the Jews had been kicked out uh, came to be known as Palestinians. Uh, originally, they were part of the uh, Roman Empire and then became part of the Byzantine or Eastern Roman Empire. They became Christian. Uh, then uh, Muslim armies came in in, in, uh, in 638, uh, and uh, many of them chose to become Muslim, but uh, Palestinians have always been 
part uh, part Christian, part uh, Muslim. Uh, and then, you know, you begin to see the Abbasid Empire, you begin to see the Ottoman Empire, all these great empires where the Palestinian, uh, the area that that, came, that was called Palestine under Roman period ends up be, being just a corner of a larger empire. How, how much space are we talking geographically? Yeah, so, um, you know, there aren't any sort of like um, – firm boundaries of Palestine. Uh, oh, since the Romans uh, designated it, those boundaries changed with different empires. But it is an incredibly small area compared to what we are used to. So we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Gaza. And Gaza is uh, from San Luis Obispo to Santa Maria from the 101 to the coast. That's it. That's it. That's all of Gaza. And there's two and a half million people living in that area. If you're just tuning in, this is a conversation with The Reluctant Therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and my guest today is Dr. Stephen Lloyd Moffitt, chair of the Religious Studies Department at Cal Poly and co-teacher of the course Religion and Politics of the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. He's been teaching that course since 2007, and I invited uh, Dr. Stephen Lloyd Moffitt to be here today to give some context and perspective, and we're moving through the history of now we're talking about uh, the Palestinian history. Yeah, so so the Palestinians are living in that in that area as part of the uh, eventually the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire falls after World War One, and it becomes part of the British Mandate. Hmm. So it is all under British control. By this time, there are Jews that are emigrating, especially after the persecution in Russia, the pogroms. You begin to see these different waves of immigration. So there are some Jews, and overall. Uh, there's a lot of conflict when they arrive, but there's a lot of working together, too, during this first half of the 20th uh, century. Um, so uh, uh, under the British mandate, the British are looking for a way to get out uh, after World War II. So they want to you know, relieve their lands, and eventually they get rid of a lot of their colonial lands. The uh, United Nations takes the charge and says, okay, we're going to carve this British land into a Palestinian state and to an Israeli state. Uh, Israel is overall pleased with the idea of having a Jewish state. Uh, many of their leaders at this time are quite secular and are just very practical. We need some place to be it. There are some religious Jews who are unhappy, though, because the state carved out by the UN does not include a lot of the holy sites. So uh, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, um, Hebron, like all these, everything you hear about in the Bible, Jericho, none of those places were included in the original option. But Jews overall were saying, okay, yes, we, we have a land. Was that intentional uh, to separate? Yeah. Uh, those were all, you know, Jerusalem is a holy land for uh, for uh, Muslims as well. Uh, the Palestinians were pretty well entrenched in those areas. Um, uh, again, the Palestinians were British uh, you know, uh, subjects at the time. Um, and the Palestinians or the people who were living there were like, okay, uh, Jews have been mistreated horrifically by the Germans, so the solution in response to German mistreatment of Jews is to take land from Palestinians? How is that fair and just? I mean, if you want to penalize how the Germans treated the Jews, give them Germany. <laughs> like, why are you why yeah. are you taking our land? And, and the UN response is, well, we're not taking all your land. We're just taking some of this land. And Palestinians uh, and the Arab communities around them were like, I don't see why we have to give up any of our land. It wasn't us that were responsible for the suffering of the Jewish people. And so while Israel accepted the borders of the UN, the Arab armies around said, no, let's fight. Wow. Right from the beginning. Right from the very day after Israel declared um, uh, independence, uh, the Arab armies fought. Now, 
on paper, this should not have been much of a battle. There was something like 40 times the population of uh, in the surrounding Arab areas to the Jews. But uh, Arabs uh, may have a singular name uh, sometimes, but they, they are, are very loyal to different tribal identities, different uh, ethnic identities, different language groups. And uh, they were uh, at each other's uh, throats as much as they were fighting the uh, Israelis. There's one famous communique from the Jordanians say, give Gaza to the Israelis or give it to God. Whatever you do, don't give it to the Egyptians. <laughs> and, and so they were divided from the very beginning and they lost that war. Uh, Palestinians remember that war as the Nakba, uh, which means the catastrophe. So you have the Jewish victimization called uh, the catastrophe in Hebrew, and the result of that was the creation of Israel, which led to a war, which led to the Palestinian catastrophe. Um, and so Israel uh, obtained the borders in 48 after the war, and uh, uh, for the next 20 years or so, everybody's just trying to figure out life. Uh, and then the Jewish, ar uh, the uh, Arab armies regroup, uh, especially under the the leadership in uh, in Egypt uh, and Syrian Syrian alliances, and they say <clears throat> if we regroup all together and attack all at the same time, this young nation of Israel will never be able to defend itself. Uh, Israel gets word of this uh, attack, and uh, they preemptively attack all their neighbors uh, and wipe out the entire air force, essentially, of all of their neighbors. And in the desert, if you can control the air, you can control the war. Within six days, they had simultaneously defeated all of their Arab neighbors. Uh, and military historians will say that was one of the great military victories of all time. They tripled the size of their nation in six days, including, for Israelis, importantly, the um, the holy city, the holy area of the West Bank, the sort of central story of of ancient Israel. And are they, then they're pushing into Palestinian yeah. land at that point. Yeah. So this is land that uh, uh, the West Bank was uh, had previously been controlled by Jordan. Um, the and that's really the essential area. They also get land in the north uh, that had been Syrian uh, Golan Heights. They also get uh, Sinai, the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, neither of which play as critical role in the Israeli story, uh, the ancient Israelite story. So, um, but this creates the central dilemma of modern Israel because they had always wanted to have the size of ancient Israel. That's that had been the goal, especially for religious Jews. Mm -hmm. They had uh, pledged to be democratic and they had pledged to be Jewish. Those three uh, central tenets of uh, Israel can never be held because that land where ancient Judaism was was filled with Palestinians. Mm -hmm. So if they became democratic and said everybody gets a right to vote, uh, they would have the whole size of ancient Israel. They would be democratic, but they wouldn't be Jewish because they are just more Palestinians than there were Jews. Uh, and the Palestinians, again, are Muslim and Christian. Uh, if they wanted to be Jewish and they wanted to control the whole area, they couldn't be democratic. They just couldn't give Palestinians the right to vote. And if they wanted to be uh, Jewish and democratic, then they would have to give up the whole size of ancient Israel. And so the central dilemma of Israel since 1967 is we have three tenets that are the cornerstones of modern Israel, and we cannot hold them all together. Uh, the uh, the uh, Arab armies regroup in 1973. Uh, again, try to unite. Uh, they catch uh, Israel off guard. This is one of the great intelligence failures of Israeli history. Uh, and they have incredible progress in a number of days. It's called the Yom Kippur War. 
the it, this this war is is really well done in a in a uh, dramatized movie now called Golda because Golda Meir mm-hmm. Golda Meir was the first uh, female Israeli prime minister. Um, and, but eventually Israel regroups and wins with a lot of help of the U.S. Mm-hmm. at critical junctures in that. So from 1967 through uh, 2005, let's if we bracket that period, there's essentially three positions held by Israelis and Jews. There's the integrationists who say, hey, look, we are all Semitic people. We have all been persecuted by Christians in our history. Let us work together. Let's integrate into one group. We should, uh, you know, work together and, 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 and be as one people. There are the, uh, the, um, the coexistence people. And the coexistence say, hey, look, you should have a Palestinian state. We should have an Israeli state. Uh, we should trade with one another. We should, we should support. But just let's keep separate but peaceful. And then there were the absolutionists. And the absolutionists were uh, both Palestinian and Israelis who just didn't buy into the uh, the uh, legitimization of either group being there. So there, are, so most Palestinians were like, "Hey, look, they've been here now for forty years. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've they've been successful here. They're going to be here. Let's let's figure out a way to get along." But there's always a group who said, "No, they were their original taking of the land was unjustified. Uh, they should they should never exist." And there were uh, Israelis who said, "Hey, look, these Palestinians. They should go integrate with their other Arab neighbors. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have no right to the land. They're not really a people in and of themselves." They don't have an identity. This all should be Israel line. And at the extreme of the is- Israelis would be religious uh, believers who say, God gave us this land full stop. This is our land. In each case, the coexistence uh, core uh, center would try to make peace plans. And those were largely sponsored by America and Europe. And uh, so we have Oslo. We have the, uh, the uh, Sinai, uh, Camp David Accords. Um, and, and in each case, it was sort of like give Palestinians land and autonomy in exchange for recognition and a guarantee of peace. It works tremendously in, in Egypt. Uh, the Egyptians get Sinai back, and they, and they have not uh, launched a war against Israel since. Uh, it works in Egypt uh, or in uh, Jordan. They don't so much get land, but they agree in exchange for a, a lot of U.S. support to, to make peace with Israel and, and so have. So you have these three groups. Now, the absolutionist strategy is always to try to uh, dislodge any momentum momentum for peace through extreme acts of violence. And this happens on both sides. You have uh, Israelis uh, shooting uh, Itzhak Rabin. Uh, You have Israelis uh, attacking uh, uh, mosques uh, and killing 29 people. Uh, The face of the absolutist position among the Palestinians is a new group called Hamas that develops in in um, in concord with the Oslo Accords, uh, with this attempt to be to ma- be making peace, um, the original group that sort of represented the Palestinians were the Palestinian Liberation Organization, led by Yasser Arafat, mm-hmm. famously. He had sort of escaped Palestine or the the West Bank during '67, ends up in Lebanon. Uh, the Israelis push him out of Lebanon. He ends up in Tunisia, and so he's literally living at a hotel in uh, Tunisia. His wife is living high on the hall in Paris, and there's just no leadership left uh, among the Palestinian people. And in that vacuum, the absolutists uh, try to uh, dislocate any movement for peace. 
Uh, and in political science, they call this the extremist veto. So that even if 95% of the population wants peace, if that 5% does something horrific, uh, like, for example, when I was uh, living in Israel in uh, 1994, uh, Hamas started their first bus bombing campaign, and they killed mm, 22 people those. outside a movie theater where I was. Uh, and, and this uh, sort of attacking civilians meant that the Israelis are going to respond and say, okay, let's double down on peace, on the security of our citizens. And so let's stop the peace plan, which is exactly what the intent of these bombing, uh, these bombings were. So Hamas was the face of the, uh, the, uh, extremist veto to stymie any peace plan. And so every time Hamas, every time it looked like the coexistence people were winning out, mm -hmm. uh, Hamas would come in and try to, uh, you know, throw a monkey in the wrench and get everybody to distrust each other again. Um, so that's kind of where we are from, two th from 1967 to 2005. 2005, uh, the Israeli prime minister, a, a man who is not uh, very well liked by Palestinians, Ariel Sharon, he was a, a, a brutal a general during most of the wars. But he says, look, um, this basic structure, uh, let's give Gaza to the Palestinians. Let's say, look, you want a country one day? We, we, we voluntarily give you this land. Many Israelis were unhappy with that move, especially the settlers in Gaza, mm -hmm. and they had to be forcibly removed by Israeli, uh, Israeli military. Very uncomfortable position uh, of, you know, sort of forcibly extracting Israelis. But why, why was the, what was the motivation for giving this land? Yeah, so uh, Gaza had never been part of historical uh, Israel, so it didn't have the biblical basis. Okay. And Ariel Sharon was saying, like, look, you keep saying you want a country. Right. You keep saying you want to have control over a place. Well, here, here it is. Here it okay. is. We will give you this area. Show us that you, you know, you're, you're worthy of national recognition. Okay. Um, at that same time, President Bush uh, believes in the, the democratic peace, which is a political theory that says no two democracies have ever gone to war with each other. Um, maybe not completely accurate, but uh, overall, that is true. Uh, and so to encourage democracy, he really encouraged the Palestinians to have an election. Uh, you have the remnants of the PLO, which had become the Palestinian National uh, uh, Authority. Uh, their political group is called Fatah. Uh, they're kind of the main people. Everybody assumed they were going to win. They were the ones who were the partners of peace. They were the ones who were clearly going to be the government. Uh, they were also, uh, even though Yasser Arafat had died by then, they were so corrupt and so inept as, as a government uh, that the Palestinian people voted for Hamas. And, in your uh, first democratic election. In your first de and only democratic okay. election. Uh, and Bush says, oh, I want democracy, <laughs> but none of it ends up with that. Um, and so uh, Israel said, no, we can't accept this. America said, er, the whole world said, we can't accept this. Uh, what do we do? Uh, well, uh, Fatah, the, uh, the political wing of the Palestinian National Authority, the old, the old guard, who tended to be much more secular among Palestinians, uh, they said, okay, we are actually the legitimate authorities. Hamas said, we got elected. There's a civil war in 2007. Okay. And around almost 1,000 Palestinians are killed by other Palestinians. And it's brutal. Uh, Hamas is throwing Fatah uh, politicians off buildings. They're 
burning them uh, on camera. It's just a brutal war. The result of that war is a division so that Hamas gains control of Gaza and uh, the PNA is in charge, or Fatah's in charge of the West Bank. That was the last election that, that has been had in, uh, in uh, 2005. Uh, so ever since 2007, uh, Gaza has been controlled by Hamas, this extremist veto group. Now, what's Israel's strategy here? Uh, Israel says our strategy is to double down on security. And so we are going to try to isolate Gaza. And the ploy was, let's make life so bad for everyday Gazans that they will turn on their government, mm. that they will push Hamas out. Uh, because there's no way to make peace with Hamas. Hamas's charter literally quotes the uh, Protocols of Zion, the, you know, the anti-Semitic tract, and they say we exist to, to uh, remove all Jews from the historical Palestine lands. So we're not making peace with them. Let's create a blockade and double down on security, and, and hopefully the Gazan people will overthrow uh, Hamas. Hamas's ploy is we're never going to win militarily against Israel. They're just way too advanced. But we can win the world of public opinion. And so if our people suffer, this is actually long-term good strategy uh, to turn world attention to the plight of the people and put pressure on Israel to make peace. So the loser in both those strategies is the Gazan people. Mm -hmm. Their life has been absolutely horrible since 2007. If you're just tuning in, this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and I've invited today Dr. Stephen Lloyd Moffat to come in and give context and history of what's happening uh, between the Israelis and Hamas. I think sometimes our emotions can uh, overtake us, and it feels difficult to even comprehend what's happening. So for, for me, I felt it would be helpful to have uh, an academic view of what's going on. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and come back and continue the conversation, and we will be opening the phone lines uh, that second half hour. We're glad you're here. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX. Come down on your own and leave your body alone. Somebody has to change. You are the reason I've been waiting so long. Somebody holds a key Well, near the end And I just ain't got the time And I'm wasted And I can't find my way I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist, and I'm here today with my guest, Dr. Stephen Lloyd Moffat, chair of the Religious Studies Department at Cal Poly. Uh, he's been teaching politi uh, religion and politics of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict course at Cal Poly since 2007, so I could think of no one better to share this information to educate us a bit. And so historically, we've gotten to this point. I'm curious to know what 
how did we get to the place of this attack, this Hamas terrorist attack? How did it build to this place? Yeah, so where we ended the story was Hamas was really dependent upon international sympathy for the Israeli or for the Palestinian people to put pressure on Israel. Israel blockades Gaza with the hope that um, they will keep their citizens safe and the Gazan people will rise up and eliminate Hamas uh, because Hamas is not a partner in peace. Um, so what happens? Um, th- as of this last summer, uh, first and foremost, the international community has kind of thrown up their arms and said, you know, th- there's just fatigue. Mm-hmm. I mean, ever since ever since uh, 2007, uh, there's been no real legitimate attempts to make peace. There's been frustration by the international community. It seems like both sides, neither side wants peace. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you look back just at like the New York Times in the 2000s, if there was three or four Palestinians or Israeli killed, it'd be front page. By the time you get to the 2010s, it's sort of buried in the back. And now it's maybe in the online edition. It just has sort of it sort of have drifted from public attention, and so Hamas needed to re-establish uh, the international sympathy for the Palestinians. But and did they get financial? Did people financially support them if they feel? It's, it's not so much financial support, though there'll be some of that, especially from Islamic countries. Uh, but uh, really, their their strategy mm-hmm. is to is to say that uh, for the international community to put pressure on Israel to to make peace, to 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 establish a real government, to to do these sort of things. Okay. And they had just nobody's paying attention to okay. them. Uh, and so terrorism is the language of getting attention. I mean, terrorism never has won a, a, a military battle on the field, but it gets everybody's attention. So these attacks uh, now 10 days ago were deliberate attempts to re, uh, reestablish the Israeli-Palestinian issue as a international concern. Mm-hmm. Their ploy is to say, we're going to do something so horrific that the world cannot turn its head anymore, mm-hmm. and it will quickly forget the barbaric acts that instigated this new attention and will turn back to the basic structure of do the Palestinians deserve a state, what happened to lead us to this, and they, uh, the, the world will turn to the Israeli response, uh, which is inevitably, we can talk about later, mm-hmm. uh, going to cause a lot of uh, civilian um, atrocities. So, uh, so this is, that was the ploy. Get it back on the headlines, reestablish um, reestablish attention on on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Second reason uh, then was every that Hamas is the functioning government of Gaza. It has been that since 2007 after the civil war. They have failed as a functioning government in the most bo- basic of ways, things like trash service, things like electricity, the things that affect us on a day-to-day basis. Now, every time their failures come about, they say, well, we would be great at government if it wasn't for Israel. Mm-hmm. So Israel becomes the scapegoat of it. But over you know, the last 15 years, they've just failed. And not only have they failed in the past a few years, it's shown that they're incredibly corrupt. Uh, many of their leaders live in Turkey or, or Qatar and living high on the hog on what was supposed to be humanitarian aid for them. And so the Gazan people are getting frustrated. For the first time last summer, they were having protests against the, against Hamas, not for Hamas's 
uh, attitude towards Israel, but because Hamas was not providing basic services and was corrupt. 2009, uh, public opinion about Hamas was beginning to fall. They lobbed a bunch of of completely worthless uh, rockets into Israel, knowing that Israel would respond. Israel responds, and the public opinion of Hamas went through the roof. Uh, there is a rally around the flag whenever you're being attacked, even if you can kind of understand we, we provoked it. Um, and so that playbook has happened four times uh, in the last 14 years. Whenever public opinion begins to drop, Hamas says we need a little war to get the rally around the flag. Now, it hasn't worked as well as it did in 2009 in any of the subsequent times. Uh, but, um, but there is this idea that things were getting bad we need to have a rally around the flag, 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 and so if to we bring people to, back to, into to supporting Hamas, right? right. Uh, you know, when you're being attacked from the outside, you rally around whoever is leading you at that moment. I, I just I'm curious though because you had mentioned that Gaza had been kind of choked off by yeah. Israel for a long time, and if that was still continuing, how would Hamas be able to offer those? The services like was not always a conflict anyway. Yeah, so so that has always been a part of it, a, a part of the Hamas uh, narrative. Mm-hmm. We we would love to be great government, but Israel is not giving us a chance. Israel says all you have to do recognize that we just ex- deserve to live mm-hmm. and we deserve a place a place of our own, and you can have it. And Hamas will say no, we want to eliminate all Jews from this area, and Israel says fine. Then, you know, do it on your own. The key, though, the interesting political element is for a blockade to work, you need to control all four sides. Israel controls three sides. Uh, they don't control the, uh, the southern border, which is controlled by Egypt. So why is Egypt uh, continuing the blockade of, of, uh, of Gaza? Well, Hamas began as the Palestinian wing of the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood has longstandingly been an Islamic group in Egypt that has tried to overthrow the Egyptian government. Um, And that started back in, I believe, 1929. uh, And it has been the thorn of every Egyptian (laughs) government since then. Its leaders have been executed time and time again uh, by the Egyptian government. after the Arab Spring, um, there was the Egyptian government was overthrown, and for a year, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, uh, Morsi Mohammed uh, Morsi was uh, the leader of Egypt. He stopped the blockade. You know, all sorts of support comes in because hey, my compatriots in Gaza, uh, Morsi gets overthrown, and so now the government of Egypt has no interest in supporting Hamas because support of Hamas is de facto support of their internal political enemy. So the blockade blockade has really worked. And so uh, Hamas has said, we need to, again, create this rally around the flag. Uh, The third reason is Hamas begins in the early 90s as the face of of Israeli uh, resistance, right? We are the ones who keep the absolutist notion that there should never be an Israel, and we will fight to the death to have that. Um, after 2007, before a little bit, there's another group called Palestinian Islamic Jihad. They are another resistance group that really is largely ineffective. Their main center is the north of the West Bank, so not in Gaza. Um, somehow in the last few years, though, 
They have gained weapons and uniforms and organization, and they became the face of resistance to Israel. So the last, so in June and July, Israel deployed a ton of forces to Janine. Uh, they lost a bunch of soldiers. And so the whole world was saying, okay, who's the face of resistance? It's this Islamic Jihad. And they put out these videos of sharp uniforms with <laughs> weapons and attacking Israel. And uh, and um, and Hamas was like, "Hey, wait, we're 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 the face of resistance. Right. Like, we're this is our so role. They don't work together you, at all? No, they hate each other, um, mostly. Uh, and so part of this is uh, is a claim to be like we are we are the resistance. Um, uh, so we are the resistance. Uh, third uh, or so fourth is." Um, the 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 argument of America in the last decade and a half, from Obama through to Trump through to Biden, has been let's get these forward-thinking Arab countries, the UAE, Qatar, um, uh, Saudi Arabia, to accept Israel uh, as a as a partner, acknowledge the right of Israel to exist, uh, you know. Normalize relations with with Israel, and it's a it's a great strategy because if the leadership of the Islamic world uh, says, "Hey, look, the the reality of the world is there's a Jewish Jewish country among our midst, and we at least need to work with them, even if we still disagree with the origin story and all that." Uh, and it looked like uh, uh, Biden was making great progress of it this past summer. Uh, Biden was offering all sorts of of goodies to the the Saudis uh, to sign this deal, and that would be game-changing if that happened. Well, Hamas realizes if Israel is killing thousands of Palestinians, uh, even if they're the ones who provoked that response, there's no way uh, Saudi Arabia is going to sign that normalization deal. They won't be seen as signing a deal at the same time that Israel is attacking everyday Muslims. And so they wanted, uh, Hamas wanted to scuttle the the normalization process of Saudi Arabia, and it seems to be effective. Saudi Arabia has effectively given that up. The last reason why now is, um, you know, the, Hamas is always looking for an opening, a way to get in. Israel is in complete chaos prior mm-hmm. to this. Uh, five elections in three years. Their prime minister is indicted for corruption. Uh, they, uh, they're trying to sort of overhaul the Supreme Court to, you know, uh, take away most of its power so that the, the, the corrupt elected government can take over. Uh, there are massive protests. And, and here's where the critical part becomes. For the first time, reservists, who virtually everybody who's a walking uh, human in Israel is part of the uh, IDF reserve, the Israeli Defense Force Reserve, said, we won't show up for training. Uh, this is how we protest. We are not going to defend a nation that takes away our most basic democratic rights. And so Israel was weak. Uh, they're divided. Uh, they, they had uh, uh, people not showing up. And so Hamas wanted to take advantage of that. The, the I- irony of that is, you know, nothing unites a country like horrific attack. So, you know, many of those divisions are healed. I'm not sure if they're going to be healed permanently. And so if you think about those sort of five reasons uh, that, it, that Hamas wanted to re, uh, re-signify the importance of the Palestinian cause the international community had given up, Hamas wanted a rally around the flag for, for internal support. Hamas wanted to uh, restore themselves as the face of, of Israeli existence. Hamas wanted to scuttle 
the normalization process for Saudi Arabia, and they want to take advantage of the weakness of Israel. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Lloyd Moffat, and we're walking through the history and the current uh, state in the Palestinian-Israeli-Hamas conflict. Uh, He's been teaching a course on religion and politics of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict at Cal Poly since 2007. And if you hear some noise in the background... (laughs) Apparently, they're working on the roof right above uh, Stevens and my head, so you might hear a little hammering going on behind us, but that will not stop us from continuing on here. So it was it in some way calculated on Hamas' part, and then they just had some good luck that is, you know, Israel was going through this political upheaval? Was it just, you know, a, a coming together of all of these things, or do you think it was planned out for a long, long time? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think it was a little of both. It okay. was planned out for a long, long time, but they've been planning... Like since 2007? Well, no, probably the last couple of years. Okay. Uh, they, they, had, they had been planning this out. Um, they had also sort of taken advantage of a debate happening within Israel. Some within Israel had said, Hamas, as despite their rhetoric, are rational people who respond to incentives. And they want to stay in power. So if we sort of lessen the economic strain of the blockade, that is allow Gazans to come out to work Mm -hmm. uh, in places, uh, you know, this is the many steps towards creating normalization because in the end, they're rational people. Uh, There's another chunk of Israelis who are like, no, these are not rational people. These are absolutist extremists, and making any sort of deal with them is a deal with the devil that will never uh, bring to fruition. And so over the past few years, there has been a little bit of a lessening of of the the blockade to allow for some travel in various areas. And it seems now we know that a lot of those people coming out were were doing intel for Hamas to mm-hmm. figure out how to get through in areas. Um, and so in, in a sense, it had been planned a long time. The information that's coming out now, though, is no one expected it to be as easy as it was. Like they had hoped that they would get in and Get a few, get havoc. a few hostages. Right. Hostages have, have, in the conflict have been big. Uh, um, one Israeli soldier was uh, was traded for a thousand Palestinians at a point. Like hostages have been effective for for Hamas. Um, so they're hoping get a handful of hostages, cause a little damage, but then they went in and they, there was just no defense uh, and uh, the sort of rage of humanity. Uh, showed forth and uh, and created the horrific scenes that played in the video. And so, mm, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Um, so we're going to take a quick call. Uh, Kyle, thanks for calling in. What's on your mind today? Hi there. I just wanted to um, say that I've been listening for a bit, and I feel that Dr. Lloyd Moffat is minimizing the impact of Israel's military occupation of the Palestinian people. Um, multiple human rights organizations like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International have come out with reports saying that Israel is guilty of committing co- crimes, or at least accusing Israel of committing crimes of uh, apartheid and persecutions. Um, well, when you follow the kind of news of what's happening in the region, usually an attack is preempted by multiple provocations by Israel. And again, that's, I'm, not, I'm not condoning the attacks. Um, but I think there is a cause and effect type of dynamic here, you know, um, 
recent approval of more settlements in the West Bank, multiple provocations at uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Um, and then last year, the killing of um, Al Jazeera reporter and U.S. citizen Shireen Abu Akla, mm-hmm. which has left, uh, has been done with basic impunity. So um, I feel like there is should be more emphasis put onto um, Israel's provocations that seem to correspond with uh, attacks by Hamas. Um, and that's that's all I've got to say. Kyle, I appreciate you taking the time to call. And Stephen, your yeah, response. Yeah, Thank Kyle, you, Kyle. Kyle, thanks so much for sharing that. I, I, I absolutely don't mean to minimize the suffering of the Palestinian people. The, the Palestinian people, as I said, have been at the at the at the bad end of of both sides uh, that that want that. Um, here's here's my response, though. Um, Sympathy for the Palestinian people should not uh, uh, make us thwart a condemnation of Hamas. Um, what Hamas wants more than anything is for us to stop talking about how they acted and saying, okay, why did this happen? Why did this happen? That was, as I mentioned, the number one goal of this. And so as long as we are, are shifting the topic from, okay, let's talk about the Palestinian um, suffering uh, and not talking about Hamas, uh, that they've, we're, we're following their playbook. We are rewarding uh, their horrific acts. Now, um, as I've said uh, many times in many different forums, uh, both sides have created this extremist veto. And in each case, the response is the same. The extremists on one side uh, uh, scuttle the attempts of the majority to make peace. They create an unsafe environment, and that creates a cycle. So you mentioned the settlements, which are a huge, huge issue. Usually religious Jews, but not always, but many religious Jews go into areas of the West Bank, say, oh, God gave us this land, it is now ours, uh, totally, as you mentioned, totally illegally, totally against all uh, agreements uh, internationally. Uh, the Palestinians around them uh, in the West Bank get understandably frustrated with these people claiming that God gave them this land. Uh, they respond with total justification to them. Israel says, okay, yes, we may agree that this was not done according to, to all plans, but they're Israeli citizens. The first role of Israeli of any government is to ensure their citizens are safe. So they put a big old barrier around them, protect them. This creates more pain and suffering for uh, the Palestinian people around them because now they can't get to their farms, they can't get to their land. And so what happened as an extremist action to scuttle the majority who want co- coexistence then leads to just a cycle of increasing, increasing violence where everyday people get get hurt. And so, yes, I think that um, we we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't minimize uh, the Palestinian um, uh, suffering, but we also need to contextualize it and try to not let us distract us from the horrific actions of Hamas. Uh, the only way peace happens in that area is for Hamas to be uh, eliminated uh, from any sense of control. As long as Hamas is there, there will never, never be peace. Now, that doesn't mean that the, that we don't criticize uh, Israel. Uh, I have tons of criticism, especially for the Netanyahu government, for their choices again and again. And I'm not convinced that Netanyahu would ever want peace either. But right. uh, Hamas uh, is the obstacle, and we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't uh, sort of move on and talk about response or cause uh, as if uh, the 
butchering of innocent people is justified in any way. Kyle, I appreciate you um, bringing that balance to the conversation. And so what what happens now? Now it's a full-blown war and not just a terrorist attack. So in our last <laughs> seven minutes, yeah, so, where, uh, where do we go? And, and does Israel, you talk about the extremists on both sides. Will that small percentage of Israelis ever allow peace to happen? Yeah, Either. unfortunately, the extremists get bigger and bigger with every action because as so many Israelis have told me, you know, I wanted to trust, you know, the Palestinians. And then my my niece was at a music festival mm-hmm. and got killed for simply dancing. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I don't. Mm-hmm. And Israel, Israel responds and they say, I'm going after Hamas. Hamas surrounds themselves with children. Uh, everyone connected with those children are never going to trust Israel. So extremism breeds more extremism, Mm -hmm. and it needs a charismatic individual who stands for some sort of nonviolent response to do. I mean, the the reality is the Palestinians, and uh, neither the Palestinians nor the Israelis have ever had a Gandhi. They never had a Mandela. They never had somebody who said there's got to be a different way other than just uh, 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 making the other side out to be as horrific as as possible. Uh, you know, the strategy of every one of both their leaders has always been villainize the other side and take as many as we can and hopefully something's going to change. And can't we see after 75 years that strategy doesn't work? Uh, somebody needs to to come up with something else, but there isn't a solution. Uh, sadly, what's what's going to happen is remember uh, on NPR this morning, the Hamas spokesman said our goal is to gain international attention. Our goal is to publicize everything that Israel does, so that more and more people put pressure on on Israel. So, what's their goal? They will surround themselves with children. Uh, they'll surround. The, they'll put themselves in hospitals and dare Israel to come after them. Israel has such pain from losing more Jews on a single day than any day since since the since Shoah uh, that they're going to be like, yeah, we'll take that. Uh, Israel or Hamas wants that because that's how they get him- sympathy. Israel wants that because that's how they get revenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, both sides are going to justify the attack against against civilians as in their vested interest. And so sadly, there's just going to be a lot more Gazan pain. Um, and, um, you know, those who are sort of justifying Hamas's attack – in my view, have lost the moral high ground. You can't sit there and say, oh, Israel should do X and Y after you watch, you know, children be beheaded or, or women get, uh, get uh, captured. Uh, but the, the only result is just pain for everyday Gazans. The, there's a couple of ways that could be mitigated, though. Remember that the blockade uh, and all that only works as long as Egypt is on board. America could put pressure on Egypt uh, to open the southern border and allow people who want to get out, out. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Israel is kind of saying, I'm going to drop a bunch of flyers and say, here's where we're going to bomb, get out of the way. And the international community said, where, where? are we going to go? Right. We're already two and a half million in this tiny area. You want us to all crowd in one corner? And Israel is kind of saying yes. But the, the other thing is Egypt can open open their border. Egypt doesn't want to do that because, A, they don't want refugees, uh, and B, 
many of them are sympathetic to uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, who is against the government. Uh, why, why is Biden going to Jordan? Mm-hmm. Jordan has been the only country that has embraced Palestinian refugees. Uh, in Lebanon, Syria, they still uh, are hardly citizens. They're still living in camps. Jordan has said, nope, you're Jordanian. Now you're Palestinian, but you're part of our country. So what Biden's trying to do or his people are trying to do is get Jordan to agree to take – 500,000 more Palestinians. I don't know, some huge number of Palestinians mm-hmm. because, uh, because they got to go somewhere. Um, so it's, it, it is a, you know, I'm sure the Biden administration is trying to delay the, the ground war in Gaza in order to find some way to get as many Gazans out as possible. Uh, but eventually Israel's going to go into Gaza. But it's 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 a horrific situation. It's urban warfare with a population of 2.5 million who are pretty pissed at you uh, and a military who has spent 17 years preparing for a, a, a war. And that, that is not – I mean it's not happy for Israeli uh, military. It's, it's not happy for uh, especially the Gazan people, especially when, uh, when Hamas sees civilians – they see an opportunity to gain sympathy. And so Hamas is not in any way um, trying to minimize the, the, uh, the impact upon their citizens. They're telling them, don't leave. In fact, volunteer to die so that we stay in power. And as long as they're in power, there's never going to be peace. And again, uh, you're talking about proper land the size of San Luis Obispo to Napomo. Yeah, uh, yeah, San Rio. But yeah, yeah, San it's Marino. a tiny, tiny area and uh, with not many resources and a ton of people. And so, uh, you know, it's just it's hard to imagine a way this ends in, in any way that, uh, that is um, um, morally um, optimistic. I want to thank you for spending this hour with me. Yeah. (laughs) I I really appreciate your time and your expertise. My guest today has been Dr. Stephen Lloyd Moffat, Religious Studies Professor at Cal Poly. Um, I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you tuning in and supporting us. This has been a conversation with a reluctant therapist. You can uh, contact me through email, Elizabeth at the reluctant therapist.com. Find me on Facebook, find me on Instagram, and you can podcast this show to listen at your convenience. Thank you for supporting and listening to Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX. Mm-hmm.